Support for this podcast comes from ODC Dance. The world-class company returns for Dance Downtown, March 27th through the 31st, with two electrifying programs and five works, springing from cartoon, the news, and human connection. ODC.dance slash downtown. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions, online or through Star One's mobile app. Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, this is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. What if some of the same strategies used to manage a pandemic could also be used to curb gun violence? As gun sales spike and Senate Republicans block gun control measures, doctors and community advocates are looking to public health approaches for help. California has tried some public health strategies that have led to new laws and policies. We look at how well they're working as the nation grapples with the school shooting in Uvalde. Join us. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. More than 45,000 Americans died in 2020 from gunfire. One to two percent of those deaths were from mass shootings. With a death count that high, doctors and health advocates have been calling gun violence a public health emergency. And as the U.S. grapples with another spate of horrific mass shootings, Sacramento, Buffalo, Orange County, Uvalde, among others, we look this hour at what it means to treat gun violence as a public health problem and meet people who've been doing that work in California, like Dr. Garen Wintemute, an ER doctor and a professor of emergency medicine at UC Davis, also the director of the Violence Prevention Research Program and University of California Firearm Violence Research Center. Dr. Wintemute, thanks for coming on Forum. Good morning. Thanks for having me. So we often hear about mass shootings, but if they represent less than 2% of gun-related deaths every year, what are the other kinds of gun deaths we hear less about? Most gun deaths in the United States and California are suicides, a, a type of death about which we really don't have a public narrative. Um, public mass shootings, the kinds that have place names that we remember don't only account for a small percentage of firearm deaths in general. They don't even account for most mass shootings. Um, Over Memorial Day weekend, by last count, there were 13 mass shootings, if you use an inclusive definition. Most of these are uh, not directed at the public. They're targeted. And a majority have some sort of connection to intimate partner violence. So what does it mean to look at these gun-related deaths as a public health emergency? So the the idea has been around for a while. The best articulation of it I've ever heard came in the mid-1990s, actually, when rates of violence were higher than they had ever been. And we've just reached that peak again, as you mentioned. The director of CDC said, look, if violence isn't a public health problem, then why are all these people dying from it? 
Um, we have more deaths from gun violence than we do from motor vehicle injuries, for example. Um, so we've learned that it makes sense conceptually. I'm a researcher, but it also turns out that if you treat it as a health problem, study it that way, the way we study other diseases and injuries, you learn valuable things that you can put to work to prevent the violence, and you can use public health research techniques to show whether those interventions work or not. So, so talk about that a little bit. How do you study it, and what types of interventions stem from those kinds of studies that are called sure. a public health approach? Yeah. Sure. We, uh, not just we, but people all over the country, um, collect data on deaths and injuries, sometimes quite detailed data on an ongoing basis. It underlies the statistics you reported at the top of the show. Um, we collect special data doing research projects. Um, here in California, we work with uniquely rich data on violence and firearm ownership that the Department of Justice and Department of Public Health collect. Um, and then we and others do survey research. We go out and ask people about their exposure to violence and its consequences, their firearm ownership and use patterns. So what have we learned then about how California, how gun violence and gun-related deaths affect California, where California's at on that? Yeah, I think the single most important thing to say is this, that California has long recognized the value of scientific evidence in making policy and designing prevention programs. We therefore have quite a number of policies and programs in place that exist at least in combination nowhere else. And as a result, over the last 25 years or so, until the pandemic sort of upset everything, but, but prior to that, over the last 25 years or so, rates of firearm violence in California were trending significantly downward while rates in the rest of the country were trending significantly upward, such that before the pandemic hit, the aggregate rate of gun violence in the rest of the country was about 55-0% higher than it was here in California. So what have we been doing that's been working? What policies or laws have we implemented that were informed by the uniquely rich data you say we have that are working? So I'm going to cherry pick just a few because the, the proper response to a problem like gun violence is to do a great many things all at once to sure. keep the holes in the Swiss cheese from lining up. So among the things that we have done, we've required that there be a background check for all purchases of firearms, whether the seller is a licensed retailer or a private party. We have significantly expanded criteria for denying purchases to people who are at high risk. Let me spend a moment on that one. Here in California, if you've been convicted of a violent misdemeanor crime, like assault and battery, you can't buy or possess a firearm or ammunition for 10 years. In most of the rest of the country, it's simply a myth that violent criminals cannot legally buy guns, but that is fact here in California. We pioneered uh, what we call here gun violence restraining orders, which are being used to prevent mass shootings, among other things, um, we have acted to systematically enforce the law 
that says prohibited people can't have firearms. Here in California, if you buy a gun legally and then you become prohibited from owning it because you have a new criminal conviction or a domestic violence restraining order, police knock at the door and say, hi, you need to give us the guns back. There's a much longer list, but I'm going to stop there. Sure. Could you talk about gun violence restraining orders for a second and whether or not there's proof that it actually stopped a mass shooting, for example? Sure. Um, so the the mechanism is, the, the purpose is this. There's a crisis. Somebody is threatening or otherwise exhibiting intent um, to harm other people or themselves. Um, they, these are also used to prevent suicide. No crime has been committed. The person cannot be arrested. Making global threats is not a crime. Um, mental illness is not involved. So a hospitalization is not at issue. And we needed to do something. So California developed law modeled on our domestic violence restraining order law that allows people with knowledge of a crisis to go to a judge and present the case there are some specified rules of evidence here. Even at three in the morning, these rules apply. And her honor can look at the evidence and say, yes, crisis, guns are part of it, and issue an order, which the moment it is served, prohibits that person from possessing or purchasing firearms. So the idea basically is, hi, here's your order. I know you're having a rough time, but we're here for the guns and we're not leaving without them. Mass shootings. We published a series a couple of years ago now, and we have more in the, in the pipeline, of 21 cases in which gun violence restraining orders were used in an effort to prevent a mass shooting. And in zero of those 21 cases did a mass shooting occur. Do I have time to give you an example? Yes. Okay. So this is a real case. A man in Southern California makes an entirely credible threat to murder his coworkers, and he buys a gun. Here in California, we have a 10-day waiting period. He had bought the gun, he had not taken possession of it. During that 10-day waiting period, employees reported to their security director who reported to law enforcement, who went to a judge <clears throat> who said, you betcha, and issued the order, the, the Transfer of the gun was blocked. The retailer was instructed not to transfer the gun. The man never got it. When law enforcement went to his house, they found 400 rounds of ammunition for that gun. He owned no other guns, and he didn't get the one he intended to use in that mass shooting. That's how GVROs work. It's interesting, though, Dr. Wintemute, we often hear that California's strict gun laws don't fully work, um, in part because surrounding states don't have similar laws, they're not nationally applied, or that, you know, we're often hearing about how guns were purchased legally here and it didn't prevent some terrible killing. What is your response to that? Uh, first off, I admit that everything you just said is true. Um, there is no such thing as, so I'm a clinician. My analogy is to medical treatment. There, there is no such thing as a gun violence prevention policy or an antibiotic for pneumonia that is effective 100% of the time. Um, but let's say it's effective 70% of the time. Is the policy a failure because it doesn't reach 100% of the cases um, or is it a success because it reduces the rate by 70%? I'll go with the latter 
but I won't stop there. I'll look for other ways to plug that 30% gap, which is what California has done. It's why we have so many different policies attacking the problem from so many different angles at the same time. I see. Where do you think there's still a lot of work that needs to be done? For example, you mentioned that, you know, we we have ways of taking guns away from people who are prohibited from having them. But we've also heard a lot about how poorly staffed and, and yeah. how hard it's been for people to actually, for agents to actually get those guns out of prohibited people's hands. So so that's very true. And some of those comments have, have come from me. I, <laughs> I, I am leading an evaluation of that program. I know it um, to some extent from the inside out. I helped design it. Um, there are people added to that list of prohibited persons every single day. Um, on average, there are something like 10,000 people in the state um, who bought guns legally and then became prohibited. By the way, there are probably millions of such people across the country, and this is the only place that does anything about it. Mm -hmm. But yes, there are something like 40 or 50 agents statewide um, who run this program. It requires special training. Think about it. The person has just become pro a prohibited person. Whatever it was that got them prohibited, let's say conviction for violent crime, is itself a marker for violence in the near future. So here's a person who's at risk for violence and police are at the door to take his guns away. Um, this is not one smiling community service officer depending on goodwill. This requires five or six officers who are geared up for trouble, should trouble happen. Um, it's very cost intensive, it's very labor intensive, and it's been funded uh, nowhere near to the degree it needs to be in order to do its job. Mm -hmm. To me, the, the miracle of, of APPS, as this program is called, is tens of thousands of people have been intervened with, and no one's been hurt. Well, let's talk some more about California's role and challenges after the break. Stay with us. This is Forum. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Here's what we're talking about tomorrow. With the possibility of rolling blackouts this summer and future energy shortages, Governor Gavin Newsom is trying to figure out if he can keep California's last operating nuclear power plant, Diablo Canyon, open beyond its 2025 shutdown date. Do you think California should continue to generate nuclear energy? You can tell us ahead of the show by leaving a voicemail at 415-553-3300 or by emailing forum at kqed.org. 
Today, we're talking about California's approach to gun violence with Dr. Garen Wintemute, an ER doc who's also director of the Violence Prevention Research Program and University of California Firearm Violence Research Center based out of UC Davis, a a professor of emergency medicine at UC Davis. And just before the break, Dr. Wintemute, we were talking about California's approach, but also the challenges in terms of enforcing some of those things. I do want to ask you about one other thing, uh, which I've seen you interview about, which is that California's really strict gun laws, people blame those for the popularity and prevalence of ghost guns here. (laughs) Can you just talk a little bit about what ghost guns are and where we're at in terms of trying to address that issue? Sure. Um, I I think there's some truth to um, the ironic uh, uh, unintended effect of all our policies, as you just mentioned. Um, ghost guns, the proper term is privately manufactured firearms, but we'll stick with ghost guns, um, are produced by private individuals, let's say at home, but basically anywhere. The point is this, they're manufactured completely outside any sort of regulatory framework, any sort of, of surveillance. Um, they have no serial number. They have no markings unless the person chooses to put markings on them for vanity's sake. Nobody knows that the gun exists except the person who makes it and others in contact with it. If it's recovered after a crime, it can't be traced. It comes from nowhere. And excuse me, that's where the name ghost gun came from. They're of great interest to people who are acquiring firearms for criminal purposes because they can't be traced. They're of great interest to people who are arming up and don't want anyone to know about it, like violent domestic extremist groups, domestic terrorist groups. Here in California, where the legal market is tightly regulated um, and it's hard to get a gun illegally, it became of great interest that, gee, we can just make our own. We don't need to take the risk of buying from somebody who might turn us in. And here in California, these days, Major city law enforcement agencies report that 30% to as many as 50% of all the guns they are recovering after crime are these ghost guns. Now, beginning several years ago, California tightened, started tightening its laws and regulations about ghost guns. And those are, those policies are still taking effect. Undermining from other states has been happening. uh, But just literally last month, federal regulations were put in place that I think will shift the terrain for ghost guns. Um, Not right away because it doesn't happen like that, but we may actually five years from now find ghost guns to be less significant a part of the problem than they are, hopefully without them ever becoming a huge problem in the rest of the country as they are now here. I want to invite listeners to join our conversation, Dr. Wintermute. And listeners, what questions do you have about California's approach to gun violence and what it means to approach this as a public health issue? Maybe you're a doctor or a healthcare professional. What do you want people to understand about the risks of firearm injury or death? 
As you've heard Dr. Wintermute talk about some of the strategies, the public health strategies, have you tried any of these, a gun violence restraining order, for example, or how have you managed the risk of a gun in your household or community? You can email us, forum at kqed.org. You can post your thoughts on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. We're at KQED Forum. You can give us a call at 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. And Michael tweets... The motivations for suicide and homicide are vastly different, except for family murder-suicide. How can physicians simply lump the two together, adding accidental deaths as well? I think he's talking earlier about how we were quantifying um, gun-related deaths. So, um, yes, they are different. Um, The demographics are different. Homicide, a problem of predominantly young men and young men of color, risk going down with age. Suicide... Um, the group at highest risk is white non-Hispanic men and risk goes up with age. In fact, to spend just one moment on that, so much more common is suicide that nationwide, beginning in uh, the mid-30s of age, a plurality and then a majority of people who die in the United States from gun violence are white non-Hispanic men. I agree that there are many differences, but there are also factors in common. Number one, alcohol use is a huge risk factor for both. We can work on gun violence by working on alcohol. Number two, isolation is a huge risk factor for both. Strategies are different. Number three, a prior history of violence is a huge risk factor for violence to self as to others. We can, can, and we here in California do, have policies about people buying firearms um, who have a prior history of violence. We, we talked about them. But the other thing that in co- is in common is access to firearms, just generally. I'll give you the suicide example. <clears throat> if I try to kill myself with a gun, there's a 90% chance that I will, as they say, succeed, that I will die. If I try to kill myself, not just a gesture, but serious intent with medications, drugs, there's a 90% chance that I will survive. Those odds of survival are really different. As it's called, access to lethal means, in this case, firearms, really makes a difference. Well, I want to bring two people in now who are working on gun violence prevention at the community level, implementing it at the community level. And joining me for that is Akil Bashir, founder and executive director of Brotherhood Unified for Independent Leadership Through Discipline, or BUILD. That's a Los Angeles-based nonprofit that works to increase public safety in communities across the U.S. Akil, thanks so much for being with us. Well, thank you for having me, Nina. Also, Nina Carter is with us, violence interrupter at Youth Alive in East Oakland, which is an Oakland nonprofit that works to prevent violence and create young leaders. Nina Carter, really glad to have you on as well. Thank you. Well, so Akhil, I want to start with you, if I could. Can you tell us about BUILD's work and how it approaches gun violence prevention among the people it serves? Well, the whole concept of BUILD, saving lives, restoring uh, communities, providing hope, implementing proactive solutions to self-determination and self-reliance affords community members the capacity to build out their narratives as it addresses or they address the concerns in their given community. In marginalized communities where we work holistically, Mm -hmm. uh, one of the main things that uh, permeates is the 
violence perspective, a culture of violence, trauma, et cetera. Uh, what we do is attempt to build out processes and strategies for communities to be able to identify, to manage, and to survive the different nexus or the different continuums of violence, gang violence being at the top of that list. And so we build out those strategies, we build out protocols, we train community members by providing them the type of infrastructure to where they can navigate that environment and uh, at the end of the day, create the type of solutions they want related to that environment and to the uh, action of violence, specifically gun violence that is used throughout these communities. I see. Nina, you work as a violence interrupter. Can you talk about what interruption means, how you interrupt gun violence? Thank you for having me on. Um, How we interrupt violence, first of all, we um, are credible messengers from our community. So at Youth Alive, Um, Their strategy is uh, relationship building. So most of um, our violence interrupters work in the community that they once was a problem in. So um, being a credible messenger in those communities, you have already gained the respect of the community. So coming back with resources and different avenues to impact the community um, give us leeway to do the work. So most of our um, process is those relationship building through services. So as a violence interrupter, I respond to um, shootings and homicides. Um, And at that point, Youth Alive also offer a wraparound of services. So coming in contact with gun violent victims or homicide families, we're able to walk them through that trauma while we're walking them through those experiences, we are able to identify other things within the family, which is where the prevention measure comes in because sometimes it's already occurred. So now we have to deal with the initial situation because it's active, but also to prevent retaliation or anything else from coming from that, we start building those relationships while we're assessing the family issues while we are dealing with the victims. So in those cases, we offer different services. Normally we first initial is safety assessment, going to getting a notification from the police or a homicide defect, uh, detective and meeting the people at a bedside visit. That's just the initial safety assessment. And from that, what information we get from that is how we navigate through that system. Wow. If we're I, on a, yeah, uh-huh. Oh, I'm oh, sorry to interrupt you. Uh, I just meant to say that you've said a lot of really important things there. Mm-hmm. For example, mm-hmm. that one of the things that's so important is that this intervention is done by people from the community, that there is already a sense of connection there that can be really powerful. And then you talked about doing an assessment. It also sounded like you were looking at underlying issues that contribute to the violence that they've experienced. Can you talk a little bit about that? What do you look for that you see as potential triggers? First thing we look at is um, when we approach the scene, the energy. It's the energy of the family members. Who's, who's um, a lot of teenagers show a lot of emotions. You hear a lot of things. So at those scenes, that is how we initiate how 
retaliation could be possible. Mm-hmm. So really just getting there, paying attention to the people on the scenes and knowing the um, the head leaders from those communities. So we before we get to the scene, we already calling, making phone calls. Who is this family connected to? What's the background of this family? Because at the um, end of the day, our safety is first. So just knowing um, certain information when we go to those scenes is what allow us to be able to assess what's needed in that moment. So if we know we're dealing with a family that has a, a history of being active, which means active mean they on go and they gonna retaliate um, soon as something go wrong, then we're going straight to those leaders. And then we're trying to mediate conflict right there. So sometimes that's what uh, having to do emergency relocation, mm. um, redirecting the energy. So there's so many different tools we have to use in those situations because no situation is the same. Mm. Redirecting energy. It's interesting, Akhil Bashir. It reminds me of something that you've said, or a couple of things. One, you've said that if people are used to using guns and the gun is taken away, they're often looking for or finding another one. And also sort of repeating the narrative that guns are the answer. How do you disrupt that? Well, see, that's a very good question. And I want to give you for live uh, their salutes. We work with them. They- <laughs> outstanding work. We're also, and all of my people are practitioners, so we're on the ground. So when you step into these communities, uh, you have to look at the normality or why people are doing what they're doing. I think while we all agree on the public health uh, strategy, which is so important, it's just that it is a strategy or it is a um, process to get to an end result. We have to look at it from different perspectives. Uh, what um, uh, Mina was just talking about was a license to operate, having that credibility within that given community. So when you look at uh, the action of the use of a gun, something is driving that action. Hence, back to the root cause, as you so effectively said a second ago, you have to understand what is causing that person to pick up that gun, what decision that they have bought into that it would be acceptable for them to use that gun and the acceptance of them using uh, the, or uh, not using, but uh, accepting the uh, responsibility and the consequences of what that gun use might happen. So you've got to define from your perspective what their story is. You've got to look at what is driving them. And then if you're going to effectively cause them uh, to change their narrative, you've got to interrupt that story. So that means you've got to get deep into the assessment process of the individual, the surrounding areas, uh, the peer group instructor that is involved. You can't look at just the individual. You have to look at the holistic nexus of how and where that individual is operating back to the what, when, where, why uh, procedure. The first part of the public health strategy is to define the problem, looking for those four W's. So what we do effectively when we engage in these communities, because we understand and come from the culture, we look for those common causes, those common uh, denominators. And then we see, can we, in the alteration process, provide equal uh, options for that individual to embrace that gives them or will give them the same result at the end of the day of using that gun will give them 
uh, and uh, create that degree of wellness and restorative uh, process that that individual wants to pick up that gun for in the first place and do damage with. So you've got to have psychological redirection. You've got to have psychological alteration within this process if you're going to truly get a changing of the continuum of what's happening uh, with gun violence. So Dr. Wintermute, do you... Have you collected data or research on the effectiveness of these kinds of methods that Akil and Nina are are describing here? So thanks for the opportunity to comment. Um, we are doing some research here on the effectiveness of programs like this, but I'm happy to report that work done over several years by others shows that these programs and, and others like them are effective. I mean, community um, in intervention fact, programs. Yes, yeah. exactly. Um, and, and I would add hospital-based intervention programs um, yeah. to the list. And there are blends of the various types. And um, let me emphasize this. When we do an evaluation of a policy, um, we're really pleased and struck by a, a finding of, let's say, a 25 to 30% reduction in risk at the individual level. Some of the evaluations of community-based programs are showing reductions of 40% or more at the community level, not just at the level of the people directly affected, but for the entire community within which the intervention is taking place. That's really quite remarkable. Wow. And you had mentioned earlier about how white non-Hispanic males are the most likely group to commit suicide. Is that right? That's correct. Most, and most represented demographic group of suicides. And we've also connected mass shootings to suicides. Um, how are community interventions effective, uh, specifically with regard to suicide prevention? Um, I'll comment briefly, and then I think that's a question for the other two panelists. Yes. And um, we're just coming right up on a break. Sorry. Okay, so the brief comment is, if you see something, say something, and that will provide opportunity for someone to intervene. We're talking with Dr. Garen Wintemute and Akil Bashir of BUILD, Nina Carter of Youth Alive. We're talking about gun violence, and we're talking with the community organizations that are treating gun violence as a public health issue, as well as the research that Dr. Wintemute does to treat gun violence as a public health emergency. We're taking your questions and calls at 866-733-6786, emailing forum at kqed.org, posting them Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, at KQED Forum, and we'll get to more of those right after the break. Stay with us. I'm Mina Kim. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. 
Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about gun violence, mass shootings, suicides, homicides, with Dr. Garen Wintermute, uh, an emergency medicine professor at UC Davis, Akhil Bashir, founder and executive director of Build Brotherhood Unified for Independent Leadership Through Discipline, based in Los Angeles, and Nina Carter, a violence interrupter for Youth Alive, based in Oakland. And you, our listeners, are sharing your thoughts and questions about California's approach and what are effective interventions, as well as your questions about interventions from a public health lens. And Nina, just before the break, we were talking about uh, suicides and homicides. And I, I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about what you find effective in terms of reaching out to people who are considering suicide. Um, for me, as a um, violence interrupter, normally when I'm dealing with a person who is threatening suicide, or I get a call about somebody threatening suicide, it's normally a cry for help. So in those incidents, then we find out, um, goes back to what Akia was saying, what is the basis behind this emotion? Because a lot of times it comes from a place of emotion and a place of lack of. Mm. So when I have experienced those type of situations, it's normally a person being misunderstood and don't know how to really challenge those emotions or they're dealing with a situation that they have no control over. So normally getting them out of environment, um, allowing them to speak through that process of why they felt like um, committing suicide was they um, dead in, then they tend to learn how to work out those situations if you make yourself available. So at Youth Alive as well, that's why um, we have life coaches. I am also a certified um community life coach. So in that role is where I could do more of a hands-on walk with this person through those initial feelings and then get them redirected to other resources because I'm not medically or I don't have a title to do any type of medical treatment. Mm -hmm. But based on my relationships, I can have a conversation to redirect that initial feeling and get them the help that they need. So that's within a suicide. That's how I deal with those. And I, we should take a moment also just to remind listeners that the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline is available 24 hours, and that number is 1-800-273-8255. Akhil Bashir, I don't know if there's anything you want to add to that. In particular, I'm also really curious about how when you have a successful interaction, how you make sure that what worked in that interaction isn't lost. Very good questions. I, I would like to add to what the uh, doctor, both the guests said so effectively. Um, one of the things, we have a concept. Those of us uh, that are closest to the problem have to be closest to the solution. And if you look at what's happening across the nation, uh, stemming from the White House, et cetera, you'll see that this concept of community-led public safety is truly driving the process. Putting those with lived experience, those who are traumatized, back into the equation of coming up with some of the answers and solutions, which is so imperative. We have a saying, how are you going to heal me if you can't feel me? you got to understand what is going on. So when we look at suicide, uh, that usually is a um, factor where individuals 
uh, have needs and wants that are not being met. Uh, and people have given up on having any hope of uh, moving any further. We say a permanent solution for a temporary problem. So you have to be able to, again, uh, determine through that assessment process, through that actual engagement, what that individual is going on, what is actually happening, and then making sure that you have the uh, holistic uh, partnerships to engage. Uh, I don't think any one of us on this call has all the answers, but we understand multidisciplinary collaboration to be able to meet the multiple needs of individuals in these communities uh, is so important. To your point of, of, of solutions, one of the things we do, because we're on the ground, but we also have built out our own training institution. We also train uh, people across the nation. We develop systems and processes which creates templates. And these processes and templates come from interaction within these communities. So we'll do an interaction, we'll have an engagement, and then we'll come up with solutions and we'll tear it down. What worked, what did not work? What did we do that was effective? Uh, then we will build out what we call protocol that defines how to engage that given system. So when we go in like communities, when we find liked individuals, we have a template or we have templates of instructions of best practices that have worked and that have worked from an evidence-based perspective. Mm -hmm. Evidence-based is going to a situation, tearing it down and finding out what was good, what was bad, and then coming up with an answer that you can look back and say, this is why we got to the end result of where we're at. So mm -hmm. we will go in with these strategies and solutions. You have got to give people instructions. You just can't come in with your expertise and say, do this or do that. We have got to give people the instructions, show them how they can achieve the end ob objective, make sure they understand why they're where they're at in the moment, and then give them some options to be able to work with. If we don't create the individual and community ownership at the end of the day, we truly have to question what we have done with our process and our expertise. Wow. So you collect the data and then you create the templates that people can use to see how they're effective. Let me go to some calls. Uh, Scott in Ventura. Thanks for waiting, Scott. Go ahead. Oh, hello. Hi. Go right Thank ahead. With you. Uh, well, just in your conversation, I um, it made me think about the first time I, um, it, 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 in regards to gun safety, uh, when I was a very young child. Well, it, in uh, I was probably seven or eight years old. I found my grandfather's revolver in the top. He was a security guard and found his revolver in the top in a desk drawer where, uh, <clears throat> staying at his house. And I remember uh, being fascinated by it, but I was also raised with um, a respect uh, for guns. And I put it away and I never opened that drawer again. Mm. And, it's, and that's one of the things that differ across the country uh, is that there the people who own guns and 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 respect them and and teach that respect um it it's a different mindset than people who are looking at it from the outside and i think all the things that you're talking about are essential and i would love to see the the conversation move from uh as i think you've mentioned uh in general from gun um control to to gun safety and mm. and, and the broad uh in the broad uh, spectrum in in which California has uh, undertaken this, I think is is good. But it, there is there is a divide, almost like a generation gap um, between gun owners and non gun owners uh, that makes communication tough. And and uh, I I hope to see a little bit more meeting in the middle. I think would help uh, everyone. 
Scott, thanks. So a couple things, Dr. Wintermute, from what Scott is saying. First, what does the public health community have to say about the effectiveness of, of gun storage, gun safety um, as a strategy? And then also, if, I mean, essentially what Scott is asking is if there's a way to communicate around public health safety measures that is potentially less divisive or more fruitful. Yeah. Um, so two comments or three. Um, I don't use the term gun control. It has a lot of baggage and it doesn't convey what we're trying to do. The fundamental point being there really is a limit to what you can do to prevent gun violence if you just focus on firearms. Um, to Scott's point, <clears throat> safe storage is super important. We've actually designed with state of California support a program to teach healthcare providers how to teach safe storage to their patients. Um, and it can be accessed at bulletpointsproject.org. Um, on meeting in the middle, one of the myths, to be honest, is that there isn't a middle, that there's this divide. And, and actually, the, the middle of the road is quite broad. 80% of gun owners, let alone the general public, support the idea that there should be background checks on all purchases of firearms. Um, if there are appropriate reasons for asking the questions, the vast majority of gun owners support healthcare providers asking questions about safe storage with safety in mind, not with gun control in mind. And for gun violence restraining orders, same thing. When there is a reason, the vast majority of gun owners think it's a great idea. So I agree with Scott, and, and this, this is not a, a point being made for the first time here today. There actually is broad agreement on next steps. The problem is that the political process is controlled by people at the extremes. Well, Kyla writes, I grew up in rural Northern California with a lot of guns and they were fun at the time and assumed I would own guns as an adult. I have since decided that having a gun in your home is taking on a lot of additional risk, either from accidents or suicide, even in a home invasion scenario. I think in most cases, you are probably adding more risk to yourself and family by trying to arm yourself if you are being realistic. Now, the only gun I could see myself owning would be something like a twenty-two rifle for target practice. Uh, Dr. Wintemey, can you talk about that a little bit in terms of the relationship of gun ownership to violence? Because if you're talking about the extremes, one of the things that we hear from the extreme is that more guns will make you safer. Yeah. Um, thanks for the question. And by the way, similar trajectory. Grew up around guns, gave them up over time. Um, 30 years ago, so the evidence 30 years ago was that bringing a gun into your home made the home a riskier place. And most people agreed with that. In the time since, the evidence has become much, much clearer. And I'll give you two examples uh, from California. Here in California, buying a gun and bringing it into the home increases the purchaser's risk of suicide by a factor of 100, by 10,000%. It also greatly increases the risk of homicide to everybody else who, who lives in the house. So gun owner brings a gun into the home, everybody else is at increased risk for homicide. And there's an entire body of literature 
uh, backing up the two statements I just made, but I'm talking about two studies that were conducted here in California. The irony is that over the same 30 years, the public's opinion has shifted to the belief that bringing a gun into the home makes the home a safer place. And to me, I, I'm gonna push my luck here a little bit. Um, to me, that's as a, a delusion that has killed many, many more people than the QAnon delusion about satanic pedophiles has killed. We have drunk the Kool-Aid that bringing a gun into the home makes the home safer and we are paying the price. Hmm. We're talking about gun violence, and you are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Let me go to caller George in San Francisco. Hi, George. Yes, uh, good morning. Uh, I'm a psychiatrist, and I'm a rather older psychiatrist. Early in my career, I did a lot of work with habitually violent men, and for a period of time, I ran a unit in the, in the correctional system in California for the most violent men, all of whom had killed. Uh, I just wanted to raise the issue that I'm so happy to see somebody looking at the issue of death uh, with guns as a health issue and not a gun issue. The, I actually still have part of a collection of guns. I would tell patients to whack them hard with a hammer and bring me in the remains when I had suicidal patients. Uh, and it's so often the guns are used for suicide or killing somebody else knowing that they're going to get killed. Mm. Uh, and we should not be worried about the gun. We should be thinking about the health or lack of health care for the people who need it so that they won't turn to a gun. In, in most of Europe, you find the health care systems where, are available for people who are, who are very psychotic or who are paranoid or who are very depressed. We, we provide no care. So that even if a family member does recognize a problem, there's nothing to do about it. <clears throat> George, thanks we for... We should be concerned on the person and yes. not the weapon. Well, well, George, thank you for raising those issues. And in many ways, it's exactly what you do, Akil and Nina and Dr. Wintermute, who continues to see patients in the ER. So gun violence victims or gunshot victims. Akil, what would help you in your work? Well, what would help me is for people uh, to truly understand the importance of uh, this multidisciplinary collaboration and bringing that expertise to the table to work on a larger uh, format. Real quickly uh, and extremely quickly to Scott's point, there has to be a middle ground. You have two uh, sides of this issue, and you're not going to change mindsets, so to speak. There are commonalities that people agree on on both sides. One of them is preventing firearms from homicide, uh, the uh, preventing uh, firearms uh, in committing of suicide, and respecting of rights. When you look at the public health issue, uh, the whole concept is to improve the health of the individuals. So we've got to look at that in our broadening strategies. And lastly, I would, my people, what we do, what would help us is for us to be at the table in the equation more, bringing uh, on the ground experience to the table to help drive policies, to help drive answers and solutions. Uh, Dina, how about you, just in terms of you work at the individual level, but with full understanding and experience of the systemic issues that are creating the, the issues that you deal with, what would support your community work best? I agree with um, Akil as well. 
We need more people with those lived experiences at the table. Mm. Also, we need to look into other um, forms of resources because uh, in a lot of these communities we serve, <clears throat> people have uh, mental health issues, but they don't have the um, right language because it's a language that has to be spoken when you're dealing with certain people that makes them want to take advantage of services. So um, really getting with these families and getting those diagnosed for certain type of mental health disorders addressed, that would help me a lot if we had more um, places and spaces that was not just 50, 150 and people and sending them back mm -hmm. to their homes, but really um, helping those families understand and identifying triggers. Also, um, I remember more organizations, uh, I would prefer more organization, um, raising up um, entrepreneurs and teaching more trades and um, that will help people direct energy with using their hands instead of always being in their head. So mm. it's a lot of things that I would um, recommend just being on the ground is what I see more people are tend to pay attention when they understand what's being said. Yes. So changing the language for one, for two, helping people that's already the mechanic that's in the community fixing cars, helping him have a program to teach some of these younger guys how to fix cars. So just using those life skills and really um, pulling on those life skills and creating recreational centers that get us back to that home ec and those type of things that make people feel valued. Because a lot of times when people don't feel valued, then that's when they are hopeless. So when we start building on people live and life experience and teaching them that in that you could transfer those skills to something positive, then those are the um, avenues that I would love to see um, more engaged in the conversations. Yes. Go ahead, Akil. We just have 20 seconds. We really got to uh, shift the economic balance and get the support behind in the infusion of community-based public safety and really give us some anchors and foundations to where we could stabilize and really anchor this work. We've got to shift those, shift those resources. Well, Akil Bashir, Nina Carter, Dr. Garen Wintermute, really grateful for hearing all the different strategies that you're employing under the umbrella of health. My thanks also to Caroline Smith for producing today's segment and for our listeners for sharing their thoughts and stories. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. 
How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. A young correctional officer. He said it was the most dangerous prison in California. Forced to make a choice. Fulfill his oath or back his fellow officers. Recognize the badge of my office. I'm Suki Lewis. From KQED Podcasts comes On Our Watch Season 2, New Folsom. A story about who gets hurt when the system that promises to keep us safe is bent on protecting itself. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts.